Hi, I'm Ben Harold, a farmer and an ag journalist, and this is the View from the Farm podcast. Come to you on November 10th, and we've got quite a bit to talk about, of course. Uh, I know a lot of people out there in farm country getting ready for firearms deer season, starting tomorrow bright and early in the morning. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of harvest still going on, farmers getting some good weather now, hopefully in most places across a lot of the main corn and soybean growing areas to really lean on this harvest and kind of press through the home stretch side of things maybe as we kind of get closer and closer to the finish line anyway. Definitely seeing more and more fields of crops coming out and uh, yeah, plenty to talk about this week. We're going to go through and, and go through the low, uh, latest USDA WASDE report, uh, kind of get a look at that supply and demand information there and kind of what it's meant for market, markets. We've been kind of hoping, hoping to get some of these crop markets to perk up and kind of sustain a rally for us here for a little bit. It's been been kind of interesting to see. Soybeans have kind of showed a little strength here and there, but yeah, we'll kind of get into some of the things uh, going into that, and then hopefully get some some good news maybe coming up here for people that still you know still are harvesting crops or got some crops in the bins, wait until they're valuable enough to sell. But we got that, and then going to talk a little bit about uh, grain movement, kind of big picture. Um, we'll be talking about exports a little bit when we go through WASDE and talk about those reports. But I want to talk about the Mississippi River levels. Just got some numbers on on that situation from the Soy Transport Coalition, and want to talk a little bit about that, and then maybe even take a little virtual trip to Panama and talk a little bit about what we're seeing with the Panama Canal, because obviously. If you, you look at a map or a globe too long, you know the importance of going through that Panama Canal to get crops different parts of the world, keep our export markets getting getting the, the products they want. And uh, yeah, they've been having drought down there as well. And so that's had impacts for them. But yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some updates on Mississippi River, Panama Canal, what's going on with that. And then uh, a story I was working on for Missouri Farmer today this week I want to talk talk about a little bit. Um, just kind of looking at weed control for this year, and it was an eventful year. Obviously, a drought year makes it an eventful year for, you know, nine, ten different things at least. But, you know, there was some variety out there. But, yeah, I just want to talk about weed control, kind of some of the things we saw, the the ongoing battle with the resistance, and then anything here this this fall that we're we're kind of looking at for people that do the the fall herbicide kind of thing but anyway yeah that'll be kind of interesting uh wrap up kind of have a a feel-good story worked on too about uh the the guy with mu extension who got good neighbor week started and how that started in kind of rural southwest missouri and just a little little thanksgiving issue story we're working on ahead of time there but anyway got uh, plenty to talk about there and uh yeah i guess we'll we'll dive right in anyway but uh yeah, just uh, this WASI report came out yesterday, um, November 9th. Yeah, I'm talking on November 10th here. Um, anyway, it, it kind of didn't do a whole lot of favors for markets yesterday. We'll kind of see what the long-term impact of that is, but didn't really have a lot of bullish news. There wasn't anything in the reports when you look at the, you know, the, the supply we're bringing in here from this crop. There wasn't really anything to really grab onto to, to push a big rally, but... 
the the corn report was kind of on the bearish side. The soybean report, I I don't know that I would say it was bearish, but I think there were some some analysts and traders kind of expecting a little more optimistic report. And so you know when when you're thinking maybe it'll be on the bullish side, then it's kind of a little little more right now on the line, right now you know not not big adjustments either way. It can kind of feel like a disappointment. I guess kind of that's a, an argument for the triumph of low expectations there. But uh, just to look at the corn side of things first, um, this USDA report, uh, it, they they did up uh, up the average yield for the U.S. corn crop. Um, it was 173.0. I think there was an expectation they'd maybe move that up a tenth or two bushels per acre. It actually came in at 174.9 bushels per acre. So they bumped up the, the corn corn yield for the U.S. by almost two bushels per acre. So a pretty pretty substantial late year bump there based on, on their information and what they've been seeing from this crop. But I think that kind of... Um, you know, it was obviously a, a bearish surprise, if you will, for the, the corn markets. Um, the, on, the, on the flip side of things, as far as the, the corn export information we got the same day, um, they were kind of within expectations there. Um, uh, looking at, you know, the, the corn sales commitments for the year, they're for the 2023 crop marketing year. They're actually up 31% from a year ago, but they're kind of behind the pace for the USDA export target. So again, kind of expectations versus what they were last year. And I think, you know, people were maybe hoping for a little bit more robust uh, year for corn exports, but that's kind of where we're at now. Still a long way to go on that, but yeah, it's uh, definitely something to be watching the coming weeks, what we can get on exports for corn, because that obviously could be something that maybe sustain a little bump in corn prices if we could get some good news there. Uh, looking at soybeans within this uh, USDA, the, the WASDE report, the, the World Agricultural Supply and Demand um, Estimate. Uh, yeah, that came out yesterday. They increased the soybean yield. So it was in October's report, these big WASDE reports come out monthly throughout the fall and uh, summer into fall, I should say. But uh, last last month in October, they had the U.S. soybean crop estimated 49.6 bushels per acre. I think the expectation for most people was they kind of hold that even, but then they actually increased that yield just a little bit to 49.9 bushels per acre which is not a big increase, but, you know, obviously given the amount of soybean acres we have in the United States, even a, a few tenths of a bushel, that can end up meaning a lot more soybeans out there. And, you know, basic, uh, the, the level of economics that even I can understand supply and demand, the, the more of something you have, the less valuable it is. But anyway, you know, we're, we're happy. Maybe people are doing a little better with their soybean yields in places. I know a lot of drought areas are like, nobody's bumping up our yield results in this this corner of the world. So it's been kind of always one of those tough things when you deal with drought conditions and weather impacting your yields. And then, you know, you see these na national reports and they're like nationwide, the crop's a little better than we thought. And it's like, oh, great, you know, <laughs> pass some of that around this way. But yeah, it's never, never fair for sure when it comes to farming. But we'll, we'll see if some of those dry areas can maybe do a little better on the rains next year. Uh, just touching on, on the export side of things for soybeans as well. 
Um, the, the, the latest numbers for soybean exports for, were a little bit above the kind of the average trade expectations. That was, you know, one little bit of positivity, um, you know, as far as kind of the, the USDA's export estimates, they're, they're doing a little bit better than what they need to do for that. And they actually just reported a, a sale, um, over a, a million metric tons of soybeans to China, so that that was kind of some good news there. And there's seemingly here in the last couple of weeks been trade representatives from China coming here, some ag groups going to China and, you know, talking about getting some ag trade going. And they've kind of announced some progress. I think there was a deal signed to buy more wheat. And then we're seeing some of these these soybean sales to China. So I think, you know, that like I think I talked about a week ago or two weeks ago, you know, U.S.-China relations not exactly at a high point, but I think there's some people in the ag sector, you know, wanting to keep seeing that business uh, going there. And, you know, food and agriculture is very elemental, so that, that could even be the gateway to, you know, a little bit better, you know, relations overall there. But definitely in the in the ag sector, you know, soybeans, um, China is a pretty, pretty vastly important export market. And so seeing some purchases there and seeing some generally decent export sales information for, uh, for soybeans, I think is pretty, pretty encouraging for a lot of people. Um, uh, just want to touch on wheat really quick too. I, I started out talking about corn and soybeans, but yeah, in this WASDE report, um, I, I think the thing catching a lot of information was the the ending stocks of wheat for the year. And they, they basically estimated those 684 million bushels um, that had been 670 million in October. And the expectation had been they keep it around 670. It actually, again, a little higher. So basically what that means, you know, going to have more wheat on hand here at the end of the year. And that obviously, again, it's a bit of a drag on prices. But um, export-wise, it's, you know, not... Nothing too optimistic in the numbers they released yesterday. Um, you know, a little bit below the pace they need for the export goal for the year. But I think there's just a lot of a lot of unknowns right now in the wheat export market. Obviously, global news can have a pretty big in, impact for wheat markets. And um, you know, just e each week the latest results. Ukraine and Russia are pretty big wheat exporters, and so you know, depending on the news with the Black Sea corridor and the war there from week to week, it kind of zigzags up and down. But Right now, you know, the, the strong U.S. dollar and some things like that, it's not a lot of home run optimism in the wheat export market, but, you know, it's it's they're kind of kind of kicking along anyway and maybe keeping in the game a little bit. So we'll see what's going to come here in the next next couple weeks and months on the wheat exports. Uh, I did want to talk talk about why we're doing exports, the, the livestock side of things. Um, let me get these numbers called up for you, too. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and touch on the hogs first. Um, the export information on hogs is, has again picked up the last couple of weeks, which has kind of given a little, little support to, to some hog prices. Um, they've been kind of looking for, for reason for support here lately. So that's kind of good, good to see, but yeah, just export, uh, sales, you know, the, this last week, let me see what we have here. They were, yeah, over, uh, over 50,000 tons. So, that's, you know, up from a little over 30,000 a week before. Actually, it was the highest weekly total since April. So seeing some good news here on the hog ex uh, pork export side of things. And, you know, cumulatively, we're up to 1.585 million tons. 
That's uh, up a pretty good amount from 1.432 a year ago, a little bit below that five-year average of 1.65. So, you know, kind of kind of hanging in there, though, um, definitely within shouting distance of the five-year average and higher than a year ago. So some good news there on the pork export side of things. Um, the beef side, I know we've talked about their exports, you know, for, for the year haven't been keeping pace with last year or with the, the average of the last five years, but... They kind of, you know, cattle markets have been on a downtrend here lately. I think there's um, an increase. We're seeing a big increase in placements here lately. A lot of a lot of cattle go into feedlots, and that's kind of one of those interesting things, good news, bad news things. Short term, that means a lot more beef available, a lot more beef hitting the market. So that's going to probably drive down prices or at least not provide much support for prices. But then again, if you think long term, you know, if, if more people are selling off cattle, you know, their the herd's going to be smaller. It doesn't. Basically, what we're seeing in the cattle on feed numbers, we're not seeing some rapid building back up of the cattle herd or even necessarily laying the, the groundwork for that. I want to touch on that for a minute. But first, I want to get a little more concrete number um, on those beef export sales. Yeah, it looked like they were um, a little over 20,000 total for the, they, they divide them up into 24 and 23 for the year for the, the delivery. But yeah, a little over 20,000 total, up from almost 19,000 the week before, well above the four-week average. So, you know, pretty good uh, export week this week for beef anyway. Uh, cumulative for the year up to 800,000 tons down from 960,000 a year ago and a little below the five-year average of 890,000 tons. So good week, but again, still kind of running behind our, our recent beef export pace. Something for sure to be watching because just like with anything, exports play a pretty big role. As far as the, the numbers we're seeing, um, I was reading a, a commentary from Andrew Griffith. He's a, a uh, livestock economist with the University of Tennessee, really focused on the cattle markets and always has some interesting things to say. I've interviewed him for stories. He's a pretty, pretty interesting guy. If ever we get to a point where I figure out the technology or get enough going with this podcast to have guests on there, he'd probably be a good one because he's, he's a thoughtful guy for sure. Comes, comes at things from a lot of different angles, but um, you know, he was talking about this latest cattle on feed information and, you know, all these all these cattle we're seeing in, in feedlots and the the heifers is a percent of the total cattle on feeds actually at a record level right now. Um, and so that means, you know, we're not not holding back a ton of heifers right now. And so that means, you know, that probably kicks the can down the road for expansion. He was saying even, you know, we talk about our January one uh, beef cattle numbers and that's always the, the big report that comes out. You get some numbers throughout the year, but that's the, you know, sort of the big annual, you know, drive the stake in the ground, see where we're at with our cattle numbers to begin the year. And I think, you know, a lot of people are talking about what that number is going to be to start 2024. And he says with all these heifers coming to the feedlot, it's looking like even lower beef cow inventory to start 2025. Um, which, you know, it, it, the information about all these cattle go into feedlots, you know, should support prices in the longer run um, as calf crops will continue to be smaller in 2024 and even uh, there'll be even fewer cattle to place on feed in 2025. Um, just thinking about smaller calf crops, that's a smaller group to save back heifers from, that kind of thing. But obviously near term, you know, the next six to eight months, there's going to be plenty of beef hitting the markets. So 
catalog markets probably won't get much of a boost there. But I, I do think, you know, again, just the, the physiology, the biology of cattle and how long a cow is pregnant and things like that. It takes a little time to build up herd numbers and, uh, you know, unless they start popping out a bunch of twins and triplets on us and that's headaches in and of itself. But really, though, just, you know, you're talking one cow, one calf per cow per year and, you know, feed costs, corn's come down some, but you know, feed availability is a challenge in a lot of areas for the winter. And so a lot of, a lot of cattle hit markets and, you know, with, with, um, calf markets, what they were, sometimes it's kind of hard to turn down that money. If you can go ahead and market your, your calves, whether they're heifers or steers. And, uh, it, it appears based on what we're seeing there, a decent amount of people either didn't feel like they had good feed supplies or they wanted to take the money because we've got quite a few, quite a few heifers in feedlots right now. And so, you know, could be just a little bit here before we really are able to start turning the corner and, you know, cattle herd sizes kind of can go in cycles and we're still, still looking for that, that big turn where we start, you know, packing the numbers back up, but that could be down the road, something that'll support cattle prices. Uh, again, the, the scarcity side of things and, We'll be watching that for sure, and we'll get our January 1 numbers come up in 2024. But, yeah, that was, I, th I think, interesting when Andrew Griffith with University of Tennessee was saying, you know, the, the thing he's starting to think about is January 1, 2025, you know, a year from this coming New Year's Day, what we're going to see. So we'll be watching that, kind of following the long-term story. And then, uh, yeah, just one other thing, I guess, kind of from a marketing perspective, it's a little, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to it, but... Um, I want to talk about that Mississippi River conditions, Panama Canal, I'm going to touch on that, um, go international here. But yeah, as far as the Mississippi River, we've talked about a little bit on this podcast, just the impact that has and, you know, what it can do to basis levels, just how it can make things more expensive to ship and, you know, basically just negatives um, one after another, what we see whenever the, the river levels are low and tough to transport and even can, you know, getting inputs and supplies too. There's just a lot of, a lot of headaches that come from that. But um, yeah, I was looking at some information from uh, the, the Soy Transportation Coalition. Uh, Mike Steenhook is the executive director. Uh, I might be pronouncing his last name wrong, but that's I suppose what happens when you go from the uh, a ag journalist here who writes stories to then podcast, you got to get your pronunciations right. But yeah, he's based up there in Ankeny, Iowa. But yeah, uh, Mike's numbers there from the Soy Transportation Coalition um, have been seeing water levels come up a little on the Mississippi. We you know caught some rains in October, a little bit into early November, but um, still pretty low. But at St. Louis, the river gauge, Mississippi River gauge is at 3.8 feet. This is as of within the last week. So let's just say from early November. Um, but anyway, yeah, Mississippi River at St. Louis, 3.8 feet, which has actually come up. It was a negative 3.47 feet on September 17th. The way those river gauges are very old and they placed them and they give you a historical reference, but you know, we've actually done some dredging and the river gets channelized and different things like that. So you can actually go below zero at uh, pretty well most of these river gauges I know about. But anyway, it kind of gives a, a frame of reference there, but either way, 3.8 feet. It's not like it's actually 3.8 feet deep, but it's, you know, pretty, pretty low at that point. But it has come up, uh, I guess that would be a little over seven feet. It's come up since the middle of September. So that's kind of encouraging to see. And then at Memphis, 
the river gauge was at uh, negative 7.29 feet, which is an improvement from the lowest level of negative 11.99 on October 17th. So uh, two, three weeks there, it's uh, come up, uh, I guess, almost five feet. Uh, yeah, because it was about 12, negative 12 feet. And now it's getting down close to negative seven. So anyway, seeing some progress there. Um, obviously, this time of year, 2021 and 2020, St. Louis and Memphis, Mississippi River levels were a lot higher. Last year was pretty dry for sure, but yeah, it's kind of like two falls in a row we've dealt with a dry fall, but just for, for frame of reference, again, the two years before, they were a lot higher. Um, obviously, been able to increase the freight, the, you know, the soy coalition talking from perspective of soybeans, be able to move a lot more soybeans, but freight in general on the river, um, able to, to haul more uh, per load, more per barge with the higher level. Still, still some reductions there. Um, I think Mike was saying like 15 to 20 percent are the, the restrictions right now, the reductions with um, the, the width as well as, you know, what they're loading per barge. But obviously with, with less water in there, you have to trim in your accepted channel width. And so you can't just attach as many barges together, that kind of thing. So anyway, we're, we're still seeing some of those restrictions, but definitely have improved the situation a little bit hopefully get more rain and I guess won't be too long and be getting snow up in the northern parts of the river basin and that'll, you know, start to hopefully have an impact. But uh, anyway, yeah, as far as just to get a sense of the the numbers looking like in late October, um, the movement of grain, it was uh, totaled a little over 800,000 tons of grain movement via, bar via barge on the Mississippi River. Um, just to give you a sense of, you know, what, how, how important this, you know, water highway is, if you will. We, we haul grain on, ship it down to New Orleans and go around the world. Um, but that's a, an increase, that late October number was an increase of 43% from the previous week. So seeing some impact of some of the October rains there, able to get more water in the river, haul more, more crops there on the barges. Um, it was actually 48% more than the same period last year because we were staying pretty dry at this point last year. It was a, a very dry fall. It was one of the reasons harvest got over pretty quick, but, you know, it was it caused a lot of issues on the Mississippi River. Um, anyway, yeah, basically, just to, to sum it up, the river levels have improved over the last several weeks, but, you know, for the Mississippi River to be, it, it can be a very efficient way, obviously, to move crops, and it's still not operating at full capacity. The the you know farmers the whole industry needs it to do so it, it kind of remains a concern but hopefully things are turning the corner a little i you know i know a lot of the forecasts uh, just around you know north north missouri different parts around my neck of the woods there's not not a whole lot of rain you know for the the state of missouri in the forecast the next 7 days but we'll we'll be watching it's a pretty big river basin so maybe catch some rain in some other areas but yeah hopefully turn the corner a little bit on that um and then, yeah, just want to touch on the Panama Canal. Panama is actually having a lot of drought down there, too. I know we've talked about Argentina and then parts of Brazil dealing with drought and the, the impacts that's had. Uh, and then Panama is obviously um, kind of where, where North and South America meet, if you will, kind of where Central America and South America meet. But for geography people, you know, Central America is part of North America. But anyway, the, the Panama Canal, it's been, been in operation over 100 years and obviously plays a big role in shipping and uh, a lot of crop movement through there. And 
um, yeah, Mike was talking about just some of the restrictions they have. They have sort of what they call uh, Panamax size of a vessel. It's, you know, the, the width that fits through the narrowest locks there on the canal because it's the canal, the Panama Canal, it's not all at sea level. You know, you kind of sail in or, you know, take your ship in and then you go into these different lock systems and it gets your water up to the different levels and, and kind of navigates the topography there through uh, Panama. But basically, you know, there's been some restrictions there um, just on the lower water levels and what they have to do when water levels are low, sometimes they, they you know, book fewer slots, fewer transits through the Panama Canal just to, you know, make use of the water they have. And definitely have seen some of those reductions um, and kind of looks like there's a schedule for those to continue being reduced going forward. So definitely be something something to watch. Um, it was, uh, Mike uh, with the Soy Transportation Coalition was um, saying the Panama Canal Authority had said it was the lowest precipitation for October on record since 1950 and the 2023 is the second driest year um for for that time period for uh for this this point in the year I should say anyway but yeah Panama Canal remains a pretty pretty important supply chain link for soybeans and grain coming from the US going to different markets um, you know, you think about going down the Mississippi River, the Gulf of Mexico, and then, you know, if you're wanting to go via water to anywhere, you know, in Asia or different different places down down south and things like that, you know, it's that's the way to go. And so delays there are costly and definitely the export market can be fickle and people can start looking for other options if, you know, things aren't flowing where they need it at a certain time. But anyway, uh, just a, a reminder, you know, I think the importance of rainfall, obviously for the crop, but then for, for getting our crops different places around the world where we need them to go. So that's definitely something we'll be following there and hope for, hope for rain in the places they need it. And yeah, definitely pretty, pretty challenging stuff for sure. When, when things get slowed down like that, but Anyway, uh, another story, and again, talking about some impact to dry weather, but um, worked on a weed control story this week for Missouri Farmer Today and Iowa Farmer Today and Illinois Farmer Today, and got to talk with people in the different states kind of about what the year was like, and um, just want to run down some of that a little bit. Um, obviously, there, there were places weed control was affected by that, um, where it got too dry and, you know, not having that, that moisture in the soil, not getting that rainfall to really help those herbicides do their thing was kind of an issue. And then places where it was dry and soybeans were kind of late the canopy and then we did get some rain and then that gave weeds a chance to shoot up because the soybeans hadn't canopied yet. And so definitely just a lot of challenges all all around with with uh, a year like that for sure i know talking with uh, aaron hager there at university of illinois extension um you know work, works in weed science and he was talking about it was kind of a mixed bag there were different conditions over in illinois but he said if you had adequate moisture and the soil doing you know pre-emergence applications and things like that you, you did pretty well but the problem was a lot of areas didn't have that moisture in the spring so it kind of caused some issues there i know um, University of Missouri, Kevin Bradley is a, a specialist who works with weed control and he's been a, a frequent story source of mine for Missouri Farmer today. And yeah, he was talking about some places just didn't get as good a weed control because it got too dry, just kind of the way it works. Um, Megan Anderson up there in Iowa, she's an agronomist at Iowa State. 
Um, she, she said, you know, they, they did do okay on soybean weed control in her area, but then corn was a little bit worse. Um, rainfall again playing a role and then also some resistance issues they've been having with the uh, corn with the weeds in corn and some of the herbicides they use in corn fields and going to touch on that just a little more in a second but yeah um a, another Iowa State University agronomist Terry Basil he was saying you know just kind of a drier year low humidity that can actually cause more evaporation of the, the herbicide droplets you're spraying. And so it can be maybe not quite as effective. And so just a few different things kind of, it's like at every turn, you know, a dry year provides challenges and, you know, a few places did get some better rains, but then a lot of them didn't. And so I think that was part of the, the issue there, but uh, something to watch, um, herbicide carryover. There were certain areas, uh, parts of the, the Midwest and really all over that were dry in 2022. So they had herbicide carryover issues this year, 2023. And then obviously a lot of parts of Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, farther north, you know, all kinds of places that were too dry this year might have the issue next year. Or if you don't get these rains to kind of help break down and get rid of the, the herbicides and you switch from corn to soybeans and vice versa, that can cause cause problems, can cause some damage. And so I think it's it's something going to have to be on the lookout for. Um, could be some carryover issues for places that were dry. And we'll see what, you know, the rest of the fall and the winter is like as far as getting some more moisture to kind of break things down a little bit. And I know, again, talking with Aaron Hager there at Illinois, he said, you know, the, the trend right now, people are wanting to plant soybeans earlier. I've noticed for me, even in my oh, 10, 11 years working for Missouri Farmer today, people really are more interested in getting those soybeans in earlier, hoping, you know, they thinking that'll give them the best, best yield potential. But um, that is one thing with the herbicide carryover issues with you know, if, if we haven't, you know, fully washed out, gotten rid of the, the herbicide leftover from the year before, that could kind of have, could have a higher risk planting earlier. Um, definitely something to watch there. Uh, you know, farmers can, if, if it's too high of a risk, can alter crop rotation plans. Maybe if there's a field in particular that might be a concern, you could plant it a little later. Um, you know, there, there's also the option to do some tillage if, if you need to do that. That was um, Kevin Bradley saying that could help with, uh, you know, make the carryover risk less likely. But also another thing, if you're really, you know, looking for a winter project, you can do what they call a soil bioassay. You can collect some soil, put it in the pot, plant some soybeans in it, and then keep it by the window under the light source and see how the soybeans look like when they grow, see if there's any damage or any issues. So, you know, you can, you can do a few things there if you have some concerns, but it is just kind of one of those parts of, of dealing with the aftermath of a drought year to kind of, you know, see, see what conditions are going to be like. And another thing to be watching for is that herbicide carryover. Um, also on the resistant weed front, you know, Palmer amaranth, water hemp continuing to be, you know, growing herbicide resistance challenges. It's not something, you know, talking from all these weed experts in, in different states, you know, it's not something that's getting better. You'll see in different states, they'll report resistance or Iowa reporting even the relatively new dicamba herbicide resistance. Um, you know, a herbicide that hasn't really, if you think about the grand scheme of things, been in use that long. And we're seeing, you know, water hemp and palmer amaranth showing some resistance and not widespread, but definitely something that's there. And it kind of makes you ask questions for the 
the future of weed control and you know, I know again talking with all these weed control specialists, there's just a lot of a lot of pressure we're putting on our existing herbicides. And so I think that's, you know, something just in terms of the plan on that, obviously, you know, spraying's gonna continue to be a part of weed control and that, you know, involves multiple modes of action, you know, mixing it up with your herbicides, things like that, really trying to you know, come at it from different angles to where if a, you know, weed has resistance to one certain thing, you can kind of get it with something else. But so there, there's definitely, it's, you know, being on top of that, but then there's, you know, thinking about solutions for these fields for weed control beyond just what's in, you know, what's in the herbicide jug, basically. And that comes down to, you know, again, talking with all the experts on that and even farmers who've had experience, controlling the weed seed is a key thing. It's a hard thing to do, but, you know, there's different technology that is kind of out there and some more people are doing. I know Megan Anderson up in Iowa is saying more and more people have the weed zapper, which is just a, an extension that you can drive across the field and for weeds that are sticking up above the crops, it'll zap them, electrocute them basically and kill the weed. And that's, that's one option, kind of a mechanical way of getting rid of the weed. Uh, there's also seed destructor attachments that can go in combines and, you know, that can be, I think, up to 90% or more effective in terms of destroying or reducing the viability of weed seeds. So definitely has an impact there. And then there's, you know, good old fashioned going out and, you know, walking a field, you know, walking a bean field, picking the weeds out and, you know, some size fields, maybe that's not an option, but where it is a possibility or even, doing part of it or even thinking about, you know, inter-row tillage, especially like at field borders or in problem areas, you know, just anything we can do to kind of cut these weeds off at the pass a little bit and get them before they, you know, especially Palmer amaranth, but water hemp too can produce a large amount of seeds. And, you know, if those seeds go in the ground, that's just, you know, that many more problems sitting there waiting for us. But the one thing kind of working on our corner on uh, controlling these weeds, water hemp and Palmer amaranth, their seeds don't remain viable for a really long time. So if you can, you know, keep any new seeds from going in the ground for even three or four years, there'd just be a dramatic reduction in the weeds in a field. So it's still still something I think very much a work in progress, but something that people are getting creative with, people are thinking about, you know, it's kind of the, the battle to control weed seed, I think is something that's going to be really important in the battle to keep keep weeds out of fields and, you know, keep protect our yields as much as we can from the threat of weeds. So definitely something to watch there. Um, you know, yeah, they talked a little bit about fall herbicide applications. We see some of that, not, not crazy widespread. It's, it's one of those things, if you could predict what the spring was going to be like, it'd probably tell you how many you need to spray in the fall. But, you know, from year to year, it's hard to know, but it can, can be useful controlling some of the winter annual weed issues. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, the sounding I got from, uh, the input I got from the different weed experts and kind of the, the rundown there, it's, it's a continuing battle with the resistant weeds and something, again, I, I say it a lot, but it's very much true on this. Going to continue to watch that and follow that story and see what ingenuity and what uh, what solutions we can come up with next there for sure. But anyway, looking ahead, speaking of pests in the fields, going to be working on a story about sudden death syndrome and soybeans, just kind of how widespread that was, any little things we can do to kind of, you know, help guard against that and then... 
Um, yeah, I, I guess I mentioned I, I had that story about David Burton, uh, works in Southwest Missouri for MU Extension. Uh, he started the, the Good Neighbor Week thing. He started right there in his hometown of the Republic, and then it became a Green County celebration countywide and eventually became State of Missouri has Good Neighbor Week now every year in late September and early October, and people can document their acts of neighboring. And, you know, it just, it, it was a good, feel-good story to write about for Thanksgiving Went with some of our other features about people doing things in their community, whether they're a volunteer firefighter or different things like that. And it's just cool to hear the stories about people kind of making, making our small towns, our rural communities, and really any community a better place to live. And I think that's pretty, pretty cool to hear about. Was happy to write about that. And anyway, yeah, looking ahead, we've got that uh, sudden death syndrome story to work on, a few other things. We'll be keeping busy. We'll be checking in next week and see how things are going. And maybe I'll have some some big hunting stories to tell you. I'll keep my fingers crossed there as I head out there into the into the fields, into the timber and see what I can get. But that's always, I know, growing up on a farm, that's always one of my special memories, you know, going hunting with family. And it's always a pretty cool thing each year. And so makes for some great stories, some great memories. Anyone who's out there heading out hunting, want to wish you good luck. And yeah, definitely good luck as we continue to work on harvest and good luck uh, figuring out these crop markets as you decide how to, how to market your crop and, and get paid for the work you're doing but that should wrap up this week i'm gonna let you go but yeah thanks again for listening and uh, we'll talk to you next week